Good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor here. Uh, and if you've been following along, you know that we sent our senior pastor, Thomas Thompson, out for his first ever sabbatical. Um, this is the first Sunday of that sabbatical. And so I think so far it's gone okay, you know. Um, if you know anything about Thomas, you know he's probably worrying about us right now and praying about us right now. Um, I love that dude, but sometimes I just can't help myself. I have to mess with him a little bit. I sent him this text this morning. I haven't heard back from him yet. So he is probably driving here right now really fast, but um, no, I remember, like, keep him in your prayer. Don't mess with him. Like, you know, I'll stop, but keep him in your prayers for him and for Jessica, for the kids. We're excited for him and excited for this experience. Be praying for him. Hey, I was thinking about this this week. I don't know all of you as well as I'd like to. That's true, but I do know this about every person in this room that the truest and the most important thing about you is that you are created in the image of God and you are deeply loved by God. And it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you don't do. It doesn't matter what happens to you in your life. Nothing will ever change those two truths. You are created in the image of God and you are deeply loved by God. I'm just glad you're here with us this morning. I want to start a new series for us uh, called Angry Jesus. And to set up this series, uh, I, I want to call to mind like what for me was one of the most iconic experiences growing up. And that was the family road trip. Um, my family took a lot of road trips uh, when we were kids. There we are. There's uh, young Jonathan Cleveland down there with the Auburn hat, War Eagle. That's right. And to my left is my brother Nate. And uh, in the middle there is my brother Matt and then my dad and my mom. And you can see right behind that the blue station wagon. How many of y'all had that station wagon with like the seat in the back that faced the wrong way? How we, like how did any of us survive, right? It's so unsafe. But we would load up that station wagon and for the most part, it would be a lot of fun. We would take these road trips. But inevitably, on every road trip we ever took, I had the same experience, the same moment happened. So my dad's in the front seat, my mom's in the passenger seat, and in the back is me and my two brothers. And what do you think would start happening in the back seat? Yes, you all have children or you've seen children. We would start fighting and we would start messing with each other. And listen, my brothers and I, we did it all. We did the, hey, stop touching me. And then you get as close as you can. I'm not touching you. We did that thing. We did the thing. Did you ever do this where you're like, don't cross this line. I'm going to punch whatever comes across on my side of the seat. Um, we do that. I do this. I'd like you unbuckle. I'd unbuckle my brother, Nate. And then I'd be like, dad, Nate's unbuckled. <laughs> just want to get him in trouble. Just messing with him. I would go on nonstop for miles until inevitably my sweet dad would just have had enough and in the most dad way possible, he would yell back over his shoulder something that every dad who has ever transported a kid in a vehicle has yelled. Don't make me pull this car over. <laughs> he would yell that at us. He just had enough. And now in a cruel twist of irony, I have three boys of my own. 
and I have to drive them around places. And I, I totally understand that feeling. I've done the same thing. It's just so frustrating. You're driving and you can't like reach them back there. You're driving and eventually you just yell, don't make me pull this car over. I've done that in anger. I've yelled at my kids. Uh, and that occasionally, sometimes you'll get like maybe two miles of peace, right? Two miles of peace and quiet. And then they're back at it again. You know what I like to do sometimes is when you're like yelling at them and don't make me come back there, you just slam on the brakes and you pull over on the shoulder where those grooves are and it makes that really loud noise and you like tap the brakes. If you do it at just right, the, the right time, like all their stuff goes flying and it <laughs> just puts the fear of God in them. Um, I, I'm not proud of that. I don't think you, like don't do that, fathers. But um, every dad has had this experience and this is something you discover as a father early on is when it comes to your children especially when they're young you can use your anger to get a little bit of compliance can't you now i'm not saying that's right i'm not saying that we should i'm not saying it's wise in fact i'm saying you know that's a temptation that all of us as dads need to fight that temptation to use our anger and to use our big presence to get a little bit of obedience and compliance out of our kids we have to fight that temptation but nowhere is that temptation more felt than when you are on the highway and they are messing around in the back seat now why do i bring this up well because deeply deeply in our Christian tradition is a picture of God that is kind of like that. Deeply in our Christian tradition is this concept of God that he is so angry with all of us. And, you know, we, we had better straighten up. We had better stop messing around because he is about to pull this whole thing over and then we're really going to get it. When I was in high school, um, I studied the Great Awakening. Uh, this was a spiritual revival that happened in the mid-1700s here in the U.S. And one of the major moments that sparked this spiritual revival was a sermon preached by a man named Jonathan Edwards in, in 1741. And the sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you read this sermon? I, I, I don't mean to disparage other preachers, but... Uh, it, it was just really loosely based on Deuteronomy 32, 35. And the gist of the sermon is this. God is so angry at all of you. Like, he is so angry. Each of you are dangling over the fiery torment of hell. And the only reason that you're not just burned to a crisp is because God is holding you in his hand, just waiting for you to repent from all that messing around you've been doing. Now, I don't know if you've read that sermon or not, but I, I, my hunch is if you've spent any time around Christians, uh, you've heard that idea or you've gotten that feeling. And I hope you know this, sermons like that, they don't come from nowhere. Like there's stuff in the Bible that talks about the anger of God. But the Bible talks about God destroying things and killing people because he's angry. And at some point, I think as we're journeying with God and trying even to love God, we have to wrestle with this question. Is God really angry? I mean, is God like that angry dad in the front seat? I mean, is hell like his version of, I've pulled the car over, now you're going to get it? Is God really angry with us? Into that question steps Jesus. In the Bible, it describes Jesus in this way that I think they, this should be one of the first things people read in the Bible. Uh, in Colossians 1, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
And what that means is that everything Jesus is, God is. He is the picture of what God is because he is God. And so this question that we wrestle with, is God really angry? It's a question that's on some level, it's easy for us to answer because we can just bring that picture to Jesus and we can look at the image of the invisible God. Is he always angry? Is Jesus always angry? And if he is, then we can trust that God is always angry. And if he's not always angry, then we can trust because he's the image of the invisible God that he, God is not always angry. And we have to allow the image of the invisible God to shape our understanding of God and even help us interpret some of those passages where God seems so angry. So let me ask this question. Was Jesus always angry? No, right? There's no way you can read the Gospels and just say, that's an angry man right there, right? Jesus was not always angry, but here's the catch. He did get angry a few times. So what I thought we'd do over these next five weeks is we would dive into those instances where Jesus gets angry. And we're going to stay in the Gospel of Matthew. And what we're going to try to do is to learn from looking at the image of the invisible God, what God is really like, and learn what is it that's making Jesus angry. And I think most, more importantly, what is it that's not making Jesus angry? Now, we're going to look uh, at really just four instances of Jesus' anger in the Bible. The other Gospels have uh, these same stories kind of repeated, but there's only four times, to my eyes, where Jesus really gets angry. We're not going to focus on like those times where he says like a pointed statement to somebody. He does that sometimes, or he'll say a sarcastic statement. This is angry Jesus. Sarcastic Jesus, Thomas will preach that later. Um, But we're just going to do angry Jesus, and we're going to just look at those moments where he gets angry. And what we're going to do is this. We are going to trust the deity of Christ, that he is in fact God, and that if he's angry at something, God's angry at it, and that if he's not angry at something, then we're going to trust that God is not in fact angry at it, and the goal is that you and I could be free from this vague sense that God is always angry at us, and that we begin to discover some of those things that he does care enough about to raise his voice and maybe realign ourselves behind those. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 11. I'd love for you to actually do that. Uh, We say that and sometimes none of us move, but uh, I want you to see this story for yourself. Matthew 11, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV uh, translation. It's the middle of the book of Matthew. Matthew's first book of the New Testament. Um, So far, Jesus, 10 chapters, he's been pretty chill. He hasn't been all that upset. He's just been kind of doing his thing. But there's been like this subtext that he's been observing over the course of his entire ministry. And it's these people who have been begun criticizing him over a few things. And, And slowly that criticism is like growing and it's growing and it's growing. And he begins to see it again and again and again. These people that start attacking his ministry and their criticism is getting louder and louder. And by chapter 11, Jesus, it's like a turning point. He's like, I've had enough. I'm going to actually answer this criticism, and I'm going to speak to this stuff, and he's going to start pushing back on some of the stuff that they are saying. Look at verse 16 of chapter 11. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. 
Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Jesus, he's gotten a couple of one-star Yelp reviews, right? And the nature of what they've been saying is this, listen, this guy, man, he eats too much to be holy. This guy, he drinks way too much to be a prophet. Look at who he's hanging out with. There's definitely no way this guy's from God if he's hanging out with those people. And finally, Jesus responds. He says, let me answer your criticism. He says, listen, remember that guy, John? He's talking about John the Baptist here. If you remember, John came right before Jesus. In John's message, his whole ministry was like, hey, get ready. The Messiah is about to be here. It's going to be great. Get ready for this. At this point in the book, uh, John is in prison. And so Jesus says, hey, Y'all remember that guy, John? I mean, John was the sort of guy that he, he didn't drink anything. He ate locust and honey, which is weird, but he did that because he didn't want to be somehow tainted by the world. He, he lived in the desert. He didn't go to parties. He didn't hang out with the wrong people. And you all hated him. You hated him. You said he had a demon. And here I am, I'm on the other end of the spectrum, and I'm eating what I want, and I'm drinking what I want, and I'm hanging out with people that I want to hang out with, and you all hate me too. Now maybe, and I'm just spitballing here, but maybe the issue isn't what you eat, drink, and who you hang out with, but maybe the issue is that y'all just hate anyone who challenges your way of thinking. And Jesus says, maybe you're just like spoiled children. And you're just upset because I won't dance to your stupid song. He's just getting warmed up. From there, he kind of loses it. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, you might be able to tell from the context here. Um, Tyre and Sidon, they're like notoriously wicked cities. Just bad stuff happened there. It's like a, you know, like picture like in our day and age, like Las Vegas or like Pueblo, you know, like just. <laughs> he, he goes on here. He says, in you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained till this day. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, not to be too graphic here, but Sodom was a town that was notorious for the attempted rape of two angels that God had sent to earth. And, and that was like the straw, the straw that broke the camel's back. There was a whole bunch of other stuff, and God was so angry with this city that he burned it to the ground. Jesus looks at these people and he says, listen, you remember those guys? They're better off than you. It's going to be better for them in the long run than for you. These are not gentle statements. I love to picture sweet Jesus this is not that. He's letting them have it. And I, what's so fascinating to me is what has gotten him so angry. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever just wanted God to do something in your life that was like unexplainably miraculous? 
Like you just longed for God to do something that was like genuinely a miracle. I'm not talking about like a faith healer on TV. I'm talking about like a genuine miracle. Like that guy was blind. Like he couldn't see a thing and now he has perfect vision. Or like that girl, she was, she was dead. And now she's, she's walking around because of something God did in her life. All these towns he mentioned, they got that. They got to see this amazing, this unmistakable proof of God's power. And when the man who did that stuff for them, when, he, when Jesus, when he said to them, listen, you know, I, I'd love for y'all to turn from this oppressive religion that you've embraced and walk in this new way where everybody matters, the poor, the prostitute, the tax collector, the sinner, everyone matters, everyone has value, the poor, the oppressed, the prisoner. Would y'all turn from that? When he said that to them, they folded their arms like this and they said, you, you drink too much. And that was their response. Jesus says, listen, even the most immoral place you could ever think of that place is better off than you people because if they would have seen the things that you saw, they would have listened to me. Isn't it fascinating that what's making Jesus angry, it's not immorality. It's not idolatry, like that's a big one for God, but that's not what's making him angry. It's not sin. What's making him angry is religious people. What's making him angry is the fact that these people have embraced religion in such a way that somehow they've managed to insulate themselves even against miracles. And Jesus leans in and he raises his voice and he says, listen, it doesn't matter how much you give yourself over to sin. It doesn't matter how much immorality you've embraced in your life. There is something worse. It's when you give yourself over to religion. You know, here's what we're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the only conflict that Jesus ever experienced on this earth was from demons and religious people. Let that sink in for a second. The only conflict that Jesus ever experienced on this earth was from demons and religious people. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, he is like perfect, perfectly holy in every way. And the only people who had a problem with his holiness were demons and religious people. Sinners never did. In fact, the, the opposite was true. Sinners were drawn to his holiness. And I think this is really important for us to note, especially in this day and age, you guys. There are people out there within our tribe of evangelical Christians, right? Um, like our brothers and sisters, there are people out there and they kind of wear this, uh, this idea that sinners don't really like us. They kind of wear it as like a badge of honor. And I heard this, you know, even sometimes people that I love, I've heard them say things like, you know, well, Jesus said we'd be persecuted like this. Jesus said the world's going to hate us just like it hated him. And Jesus did say that. But how did the world hate him? It wasn't sinners that hated Jesus. They were drawn to him. It wasn't even the pagan Romans who hated Jesus. I mean, they killed Jesus, but they killed Jesus like as a favor to these religious people. The only people who hated Jesus were demons and religious people. 
And I think what we see in Jesus is so clarifying for us that real holiness is not intimidating to people who struggle with sin. It just, it isn't. Real holiness is always characterized by love. Real holiness doesn't make sinners think you're angry. And if Jesus is our picture of perfect holiness, then I think we have to conclude this, that if we become like Jesus, if you and I, if we grow in godliness, if we become tomorrow more holy than we are today, as we progress towards Christ-likeness, we will experience criticism from religious people. Jesus said that, you know, just like they hated me, they're going to hate you too sometimes. And that's a part of it. Jesus' anger in the Gospels, it is 100% related to that conflict. Because his holiness, it was so characterized by love, he was just being himself. He didn't set out to make this conflict happen. He was just being himself. But because his holiness was so characterized by love, it was a stunning indictment on their weak, moralistic religion. And the people with religious power hated him for it. Let me mention two things we need to realize about the nature of his anger in the story. And then I want to show you the most astounding thing ever in this passage. Um, so at this point, Jesus, he's sick and tired of destructive religion. He says, hey, I'm going to start calling this out. I've, you know, 10 chapters, I'm good. I'm going to start pointing this out when I see it. He calls out two things in the story. One is he's calling out what I think is kind of this arms crossed sort of mindset. that's cynical, that's critical, that is moralistic. It's the type of religion that uh, kind of takes this great delight in posting the negative Yelp review. Uh, it's the type of religion that's able to find something wrong in any situation. So they found something wrong with John the Baptist. They found something wrong with Jesus. It's the sort of religion that says, well, you know, good Christians would never, you know, what, whatever the issue is, fill in the blank. Using our metaphor of the road trip, this is the sort of religion that sits in the back seat and says, Dad, he's touching me. Dad, he's unbuckled. Dad, get him in trouble. And that's the focus of it. That's a religious mindset. It's a religion that has a lot to say about the sins of other people. And honestly, Jesus just, he just seems so frustrated with that. And I think what that means for us, um, I, you know, I know the hearts of this church. That's not a, a big struggle with a lot of us in this church. But we have to be so cautious. We have to be so cautious about running down that road of cynicism and criticism. It can take over so quickly, and all of a sudden, we're just criticizing the journey of other people. And, and that really seems to bother Jesus. And our culture, listen, our culture loves that stuff. Like fully 60% of the internet is like this cynical, critical stuff, right? It's a huge value in the American culture. That is not a kingdom value. And in fact, we never see our Savior doing it. And so we have to really guard against that in our lives, that kind of, hey, I'm just criticizing other people's journey, finding fault with how they're living, finding fault with what they're doing. Jesus cautions us on that. Here's another thing he's pushing back on. He's calling out this tendency that religion has to stand apart from people and not really see them, not really love them, but just kind of keep their distance. Religious people keep their distance. Religion, using our metaphor, is the kid in the back seat drawing those lines saying, don't cross that line. Don't touch me, we'll be fine. And Jesus calls that out, and he does it in an interesting way. He brings up the miracles that he's done. And this is like one of the few times where Jesus kind of talks about his own ministry and says, look at that. 
but he brings up the fact that he's, at this point, healed someone with leprosy. He's healed two paralyzed people. He's healed a lot of demon-possessed people, more than the Bible counts. A lot of sick people, more than the Bible counts. He's healed two blind people. He's healed a man who is unable to speak. There was a little girl who was dead, and he brought her back to life. So he's done all of that stuff. I want you to consider, how is it that these people could have seen all of that stuff and not been moved? Like, how is that even humanly possible? Well, I I think the only way to not be moved by those sorts of miracles is if you just genuinely didn't care about any of those people, right? That's the only way. I mean, think about this. If you ever had a loved one, like someone you loved with all your heart, And they were suffering. They had lost the goodness of life because of a physical condition that they had, because of a lack of health. And if someone walked up to them and instantly took that away and instantly gave them their life back, it doesn't matter how out of the box that person's ideas are, you listen. It doesn't matter how much that person would eat or drink or who that person would hang out with. If someone restored the life of someone that you deeply loved, you would listen. The religious people were unmoved because they didn't love any of these people, I would submit. Because of the way they practiced religion, uh, culturally, they wouldn't have had any contact with any of these people who were sick. They would have stood apart from them. They would have pitied them. They would have evaluated them and talked about, well, you know, they must have been sinning. That probably is what, what happened to them. But they didn't want to become unclean or unspiritual by touching someone who was sick. What, what Jesus notices is they cared more about their concept of righteousness, personal righteousness, than they did about the suffering of people. And that's why their hearts were untouched by the healings. You know, it's, it's easy to wonder, I mean, 2,000 years removed, like, why is Jesus so upset? But can you imagine how offensive it must have been for Jesus I mean, Jesus, the only son of God, right? God incarnate, God in the flesh, God who left the utter perfection, in every way the utter perfection of heaven, and came down to be born into the utter filth of earth. That Jesus, who was all about contact, Jesus who would touch people that nobody else would touch. Can you imagine? How offensive it was for God incarnate, the Son of God, Jesus, to be lectured by these people about who he should hang out with. And this is the moment where he says, yeah, I'm done with that. I'm not going to listen anymore. I'm going to start pushing back. He is done with this exclusive religion that is primarily focused on separating yourself from people who have problems. And I I think the challenge for us is, gosh, we need to be done with it too. Jesus really seems to care about this. And I know that that's a lot of our hearts here is to be connected to suffering people. But listen, we have to be so careful about the sort of spirituality that, that pulls us away from people with problems, people with suffering in their life, people who need help. Religion, it always teaches us to have opinions and advice about struggling people. But Jesus is on this other side. He teaches us to have contact with struggling people. 
So Jesus, he's calling out this destructive religion. He's pointing out these two things that, that hey, you, you all arms crossed, just criticizing the journey of other people. And you're just totally separated from any of these people that I've been trying to help. You don't even care about those people. And he's pushing back on them. But look at what comes next. Skip down to verse 28. This is the same dialogue where he's talking to these people. You'll never guess how he ends it. Verse 28. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor, all who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, you may recognize that passage if you've been in church for any length of time. You've probably heard it before. I bet. I bet you didn't know that that came at the end of this angry rant where he's lighting people up. I'd never connected that until I read this whole thing. You know, he's not just calling them out. He's, he's pleading with them. He's saying, listen, turn. Turn from the exhausting weight of this religious stuff. He says, join with me. Trust in my gentleness. Just walk with me. Learn from me. Find rest. And on one hand, he's yelling at them, and then it's like the shocking 180, and I think what he's doing is he's calling people out, but the purpose of the anger is the invitation. He is longing for them to trade in their scorekeeping religion for his easy yoke. So one time, my wife and I were doing a road trip, driving the kids uh, someplace, I don't even remember, um, and they're just three boys in the back seat. What are they doing? They're fighting. That's just like all they do. They fight in the back seat. Um, and I'm getting frustrated. And I said, don't make me pull this car over. You know, I'm yelling at them. Um, and the problem with threatening your kids is eventually you've got to follow through, right? And so I, I did. So I'm like, I got to do it. I pulled the car over. And in a stroke of absolute parenting Jesus, uh, genius, or parenting Jesus, could be. <laughs> In a stroke of parenting genius, my wife Becky climbs into the back seat and takes one of the boys and puts him in the front seat with me. And what do you think happened? Like in an instant, the atmosphere of the car, it totally changed, right? Because when it was just the three boys in the back seat, it, it looked an awful lot like religion. I mean, they're looking at each other, they're messing with each other, trying to control and manipulate each other, trying to bend the rules to their advantage. It looked like religion back there. But something changed instantly when one of the adults left the utter perfection of the front seat, <laughs> right? And went into the utter filth of the back seat. I mean, oh, God, I don't even go back there anymore. It's so gross. Uh, and instantly, the boys in the back seat were happy because Becky's a really fun mom, and all of a sudden, instead of just being focused on each other and fighting with each other, they were just enjoying their fun mom in the back seat. And the boy who was up front with me, it was like he got an instant promotion. He felt special. He's like assistant to the driver. He got to navigate the radio and all that sort of stuff. And instead of having an angry dad, he was in the front seat and got to enjoy the experience of a relationship with a dad who loves him, not one of angry expectations. See, I think the purpose behind Jesus' anger is that invitation. 
leave behind this backseat religious way of life. Jesus says, that thinking, you've got to leave it behind. Listen, I've climbed into the back seat. I'm back here with y'all, and I'm inviting you to the front seat. I'm inviting you to join me, to take my yoke upon you. And that's where he wants to end it. That's where he leaves them, with that invitation. And I think that's his goal with us as well. You know, I know when we talk about God's anger, um, it, can, it can be a little scary. It can feel a little heavy, you know. That's the fear with this series. We're going to do five weeks on the anger of Jesus. Like, gosh, that sounds really fun. I'll be back. But uh, there, there's something, though, that is so surprising when we look at the anger of Jesus. We discover the most surprising thing of all, that Jesus is not angry at any of the things we were told he was angry at. Jesus is never angry at sin. Jesus, he's never angry at confusion. He's never angry at people who make mistakes. Jesus is never angry at people who believe crazy things. He's never angry at people who have premarital sex. He's not angry at people who spend too much money and go into massive amounts of credit card debt. He's not angry at people who look at porn. Jesus is not angry at people who struggle with eating disorders. Jesus is never angry with gay people. Jesus is never angry with people who have bad marriages. He's never angry with alcoholics. He's never angry with people who doubt the existence of God. Jesus is never angry with people who are afraid. And listen, we could keep going, but I just want you to notice something. The list of who Jesus isn't angry at is incredibly long. I don't know what you've done, but I'm pretty sure you're just like me and you've got all sorts of junk in your heart, all sorts of issues you struggle with like I do. Listen, whatever is in there, that ugly stuff, Jesus isn't angry at it. He wants to help you with it. He wants to do something about it, but he, he has no anger towards it. There's not one instance of that in the Bible. And you can trust this, that what Jesus is like, God is like. He is not angry at you. You know, in the New Testament, there's really only one thing Jesus ever gets angry at. There's only one thing on his list of things that make him angry. He only ever gets angry at people who stubbornly hang on to exclusive, judgmental, harsh religion. That should give us pause. He's only ever angry at people who hang on to this sort of religion that demands that you play by our rules, you dance to our song, or you're never going to be loved. It's the only thing that makes him raise his voice. Jesus says, no, I, no, no. I'm going to call that out when I see it from this point on. I don't know about you, I love that about Jesus. I love that he calls out destructive religion, and not just because I'm like, oh, those religious people, but because I know in my heart there's this constant tendency to go down that road, to start being super religious, to start thinking about myself more highly than I ought to, and I need him in those moments to push back on that and to call it out in me. I think we all do. Here's what I want you to hear today. God has absolutely pulled the car over. Um, he's on the shoulder here. But in Jesus, we see something so unexpected that it has to be true. He didn't pull the car over because he was so mad he wanted to let us have it. He pulled the car over so that he could climb into the utter filth of the back seat with us. I, you know, I don't know where you are, but my sense is some of us maybe just need to hear this today. 
that God's not angry with you. Jesus isn't angry with you. You're not the sort of person that makes Jesus angry. And sometimes we just need to sit in that. We have all these lies and these issues and these things that we struggle to believe. Sometimes we just need to sit in this reality that he has pulled the car over to enter into our world. Not to get us in trouble. And my sense is this, maybe some of us need to hear this other part of it. Is that he's pulled the car over to invite us to the front seat to invite us to the easy yoke, to invite us to partner with him. He didn't bring us up to the front seat so we could be the assistant driver and so that we could turn around and start yelling at our brothers and sisters in the back seat. He brought us into the front seat so that we could join him in his mission of telling these people that they are more deeply loved than they could ever have dreamed. They are more deeply valuable to the Father than they could ever imagine. As much as some of us just need to sit in the truth that God's not angry with us. I think some of us need to answer this invitation to the front seat to join with him in this easy yoke. I want to just pause right there for today. We're going to get into some other stories over this series. Um, they're all really interesting stories to me. Um, but I think maybe for today, maybe we could just sit in those two truths that God's not angry with you but that he has this destiny that he's invited you into to join with him as his, as his partner in loving this world. Let me pray for us. Lord, we just confess, when we look at you, we bring all sorts of baggage to you. We bring all sorts of assumptions about what you're like and about who you are. Lord, we know that you have given us the gift of Jesus so that there is no doubt in our minds what you're like. So we just ask that over these next few weeks that you would just clarify that, bring it into sharp focus for us, help us to see ourselves the way Jesus sees people, and help us to answer this invitation to partner with him in how we're loving others. God, we thank you for your love when in every way, it could have been anger and it could have been justified that you gave us love and we're grateful. Amen.